Imagine yourself as a five-year-old boy playing in the garden, having fun with your friends, while your mother is watching you sitting on a bench. At some point, a man comes down from the palace right behind the gardens. He goes straight to your mother and talks to her. She looks a bit worried and looks at you. She makes a small sign. You understand that you have to come to her. So you do. She says, Your father wishes to speak with you. So you say yes, and you follow the man back to the palace. You go through the corridors, up the stairs, all the way to your father's room. He's right here, lying on his deathbed, rotting, dying, even though he's a mere 41 years old. He sees you entering the room and stopping by the bed. He gathers all the strengths he has left to sit up a bit. And he looks straight at you. And you do the same. You look back at him. Sad and yet proud of your father doing everything he can to look strong in front of you. And he says, My son, do you know who you are? And you answer, Louis XIV. Hello, and welcome to Lafayette, we are here, a French history podcast for the American public. I am your host, Emmanuel Dubois, and today we are going to talk about Louis XIV, Louis XIV, the Sun King. I am not entirely sure that the story I just told actually happened, but I like to think it did, because I think it illustrates very well the character of that young boy that will become Francis most famous king. If you were to ask anyone on the street of Paris or any other French city, who was the greatest French monarch? I think the vast majority would answer Louis XIV. Let's find out why he left such a lasting impression. Louis was born on September 5th, 1638. His father, Louis XIII, and mother, Anne d'Autriche, that means Anne of Austria, but she was actually Spanish. More on that later. Had been married for over two decades when he came along. He was seen as a miracle and quickly was nicknamed Dieu donné, given by God. Louis XIII had been helped during most of his reign by the Cardinal de Richelieu, one of Europe's most important poetical figures. Together, they improved the authority of the king and centralized it. They also worked on reinforcing French culture and prestige with various institutions and projects. For example, the Académie Française is created in 1634 by Richelieu, and France's colonial policy in Africa and America made it a force to be reckoned with all over the globe, not only in Europe. But the country remained a patchwork of counties and duchies. The relationship to the king still had feudal roots, even though the French kings had worked for centuries to elevate themselves above that. 
the most important part of that was making the king ordained by God, not by the church or by any council of noblemen. The king answered only to God, but his authority was not yet absolute. Parliament had a strong power in France, as well as the old nobility. Some dukes or counts were sometimes richer than the king and able to mount armies capable of rivaling his own. Although the royal authority had grown quite a lot, there was still a lot of work to be done, and it became very apparent when Louis XIII died in 1643. He wished for a council to assure the regency, but the queen, Anne, made sure it didn't happen. She wanted to make sure that her son, Louis, would be above all noblemen in France, and made political moves to be queen regent, aided by the Cardinal Mazarin, Richelieu's successor. She also made sure that Gaston d'Orléans, Louis XIII's brother, could not have a claim on the throne. Louis XIV, then only five years old, only had to accept this and to proclaim it to Parliament, which he did. The table was set for drama in the French kingdom. Louis' childhood was deeply marked by a civil war known as the Fronde, from 1648 to 1653. There is actually two rebellions. The first is a parliamentary one that takes its roots in the multiple popular revolts provoked by the constant raise of taxes and famines that afflict the people of France. Food prices skyrocket from 1647 to 48, in part because of France's implication in the Thirty Years' War, and it empties its coffers. To improve the situation, Parliament proposes various reforms, directly in contradiction with the Queen and Mazarin's policies. After a failed attempt to repress Parliament and its demands by having the leaders of Parliament actually arrested, the people of Paris took the streets and the events culminated on the night of January 5th to 6, 1649, when the court had to flee Paris for Saint-Germain. This event will mark Louis for life, and he will always be wary of Paris and its mob. The popular and parliamentary revolt did lose steam over the winter. The execution of the English king, Charles I, at the end of January 1649, also put fear in the hearts of these quasi-revolutionaries. They could see what would happen if they went too far, and they finally accepted to negotiate with the Queen and Mazarin. But the old and powerful French noble families still wanted to take advantage of the situation, in particular the princes Condé and Conti. Condé was especially dangerous, being a victorious general and having helped Mazarin against the people of Paris in 1649. He thought he could have some advantages. But the Queen and Mazarin had other plans, and in 1650 they had him arrested, along with the Prince Conti and others. The clergy was against this decision, and civil conflicts started all over the country. The Estates General was summoned in 1651 to work on a solution, but it was not easy. The nobility criticized the ever-increasing taxation, lack of representation, 
and other deep issues within the French state. However, the rebels, if we can call them that, were not united in their claims and they often fought amongst themselves, weakening their position. Various cities did declare open rebellion against the royal authority, in particular Bordeaux. Nevertheless, the young Louis watched all this unfolding and in 1652 he went back to Paris with the court to try and achieve a solution. Mazarin is actually the one doing the negotiating, of course, but Louis is there for every step until an agreement is reached. The Fronde is crucial to understanding Louis XIV. It happens when he's still a teenager. He's young enough to be scared and impressed by it, but old enough to actually appreciate what is really going on. He's the king, and yet he is not safe from his own countrymen should he decide to revolt against the central power. He will work all his life to alleviate these problems and to make sure he won't ever be at the mercy of future troublemakers within or without his kingdom. Now, I want you to have a clear picture of Louis. We just discussed his childhood, and it was traumatic, even if he was king. Yet, growing up, he quickly showed a strong intelligence, calm, and resolve. He learned how to be an effective ruler by watching his mother, who he was very close to, and Mazarin. Louis became major by law when he was only 13th, but he effectively assumed personal power in 1661. And he did so without a prime minister, which some consider folly. Surely one man, however great, could not rule over France all by himself. Well, Louis will prove them wrong. On a personal level, he was quite interesting. Handsome and strong, he was the image of the ideal monarch, even before he actually took matters into his own hands. He was known to being able to ride on horseback for over eight hours, which allowed him to visit troops on battlefields unexpected. He often got quite close to battles, that inspired some respect from his officers and soldiers. And while he was keen on the military aspects of his role, and that ended up being a two-edged sword, he was also a patron of the arts. I don't think France has had such a supporter of French culture since Francis I in the mid-16th century. Louis was himself an accomplished ballet dancer and used this both for his entertainment and to establish his authority. The perfect example of that is the Grand Carousel, a spectacle given in 1662 to celebrate the birth of Louis' first son. This party, if you will, will have an audience of almost 15,000 people, and Louis is at the center of it. The staging makes the king a cosmic figure, dressed and painted in gold, around which the greats of the kingdom revolve, and allows him to definitely adopt the emblem of the sun as his own. No one could outshine 
Louis. He'd been associated with the Sun for a few years, being the star around which everything and everyone revolves. But he was now taking it to the next level. In modern day vocabulary, he was a master of marketing. He made it so that you'd have to be eliminated by the Sun King's rays to amount to anything. If his light did not reach you, you'd be confined to darkness and forgotten. All of Louis' internal politics was based on this, to impress and seduce even the strongest noble families in France to ensure their allegiance and servility. They would fight amongst themselves to gain the king's favor, reinforcing his own power to their detriment. This worked perfectly. At the same time, Louis had a true passion for the arts. He met Molière when he performed a play in front of him and became a supporter of the famous playwright. He loved his plays and laughed aloud during the performances. These were accompanied by music written and conducted by another great artist of the era, Jean-Baptiste Lully, an Italian composer and conductor whose style pleased Louis. He became the master of music of the royal family. Other famous artists would benefit from Louis' blessing, La Fontaine, Racine, Boileau, Corneille, and others. This is considered the beginning of French cultural predominance in Europe. Spain's power and influence was declining rapidly, in part because of various defeats to the French armies, and France was becoming the new beacon of culture. Louis will establish various institutions that will ensure that there is the Science Academy in 1666, the Architecture Academy in 1671, the Music Academy in 1672, the Comédie Française in 1680, and others. These left a deep mark on France and Europe to this day. On a political level, Louis had to make some compromises to ensure his power in Europe. The first move was to marry Marie-Thérèse of Austria, who was, like Louis' mother, Spanish. You see, the main house in Europe at the time was the Habsburgs. They sat on thrones in Spain, Austria, and the lower countries. They basically encircled France. Louis XIII and Anne d'Autriche married to diminish tensions between France and Spain, but it did not work that well. The two countries remained either at war or at least adversaries. Louis XIV's wife was chosen with the same idea to alleviate tensions between Europe's two main continental powers. Louis didn't care that much for Marie-Thérèse at the beginning, but he was always respectful to her and made sure she was also respected by others. Apparently, eventually, they did reach a certain understanding in their relationship although poor Marie-Thérèse probably did not have much of a choice in the matter. Louis was a handsome young king, and he took advantage of it. Even by monarchy's standards, he had many, many affairs. Some, though, were much more important than others. By far the most important during this period is the one he had with the Marquise de Montespan. She became the king's official mistress. Yes, that position existed in 1667, and they had seven children together, all recognized by Louis 
and cared for by him. He was a strange kind of womanizer. He always made sure the women he loved were well taken care of and recognized all of his illegitimate children, and he loved them and cared for them. For a 17th century monarch, this could be seen as considerate. In the second half of his life, he will secretly marry Françoise d'Aubigné, Marquise de Maintenon, after Marie-Thérèse's death in 1683, but I will circle back to that later. Louis also had an interesting family. I already mentioned his uncle, Gaston, who had views on the throne. He was thwarted by Louis's political maneuvering under Mazarin's guidance and became as loyal as can be. Louis's mother, Anne, remained very close to Louis until her death in 1666. Louis was devastated by passing, but his younger brother, Philippe, even more. Philippe is also fascinating. Known to everyone as simply Monsieur, he clearly loved his brother, and so did he. He was a renowned fighter, willing to expose himself and take risks during battles. He was also a homosexual and made it clearly obvious. He had male lovers and a personal court composed by his mignon, which means cute in French. And the English term minions for servile sycophants comes from that, I believe. He dressed in an ostensible manner all his life and was very flamboyant. And his brother, the king of the biggest Catholic kingdom, known as the roi très chrétien, utmost Christian king, who was ordained by God, accepted this perfectly and so did his court. Perhaps some leaders in our times could take inspiration of that spirit of tolerance. Philippe also played a key role in French foreign policy by marrying Henriette d'Angleterre, sister of the King of England, in 1661, and then Elizabeth Charlotte du Palatina in 1671 after Henriette's death. Both these marriages allowed political alliances that served Louis. When Philip died in 1701, Louis was deeply affected by it, and he cried for days. And that's something I would like to enlighten before I get into the more political aspects of Louis' reign. We tend to see these big political figures as automatons or heartless leaders. But Louis proves that even the most absolute monarch can struggle with his feelings and wants to do good by his loved ones. He was far from perfect, but he was not unnecessarily cruel. Although, as we'll see in our next section, the French people might actually disagree with what I just said. A keen example of that would be the Versailles Castle. Let's go back in time a bit. Versailles, situated about 20 kilometers west of Paris, was Louis XIII's hunting lodge. Nothing big, but with huge grounds around it. The king and his court lived in the Louvre castle in Paris, 
while sometimes retreating to Saint-Germain for some respite. The court never went to Versailles back then. Louis XIV wanted to put some distance between him and Paris. The city was dangerous, dirty, and filled with bad memories from his childhood. Versailles was ideal for him. It was far enough to put some distance from the Parisian people on him, and yet close enough to govern effectively. In the mid-1660s, he decided to augment the castle, to create gardens and fountains to make it the most impressive castle in all of Christendom. This journey will last until after his death. Louis had help in this matter. His Intendant des Finances, or Minister of Finance, was Colbert. This man was as close to a Prime Minister as there was under Louis XIV. He transformed the French fiscal system and modernized it. He made taxation a lot more efficient, helped create manufacturers, industries. French craftsmanship and commerce thrive thanks to him. But the king kept asking for more money to make Versailles, and especially its gardens, bigger and more grandiose, with extraordinary fountains all over the place. This was a huge artistic and engineering endeavor. He hired the best talents in France to do so. The architect, Louis Leveau, is responsible for the early works on Versailles. He was succeeded upon his death by Jules Ardouin Mansart. Mansart is responsible for the Galerie des Glaces, or Hall of Mirrors, one of the most astonishing and impressive realizations of the era. We also hired André Le Nôtre to create the famous Versailles Gardens. That was the dream team of the period, and they basically had an infinite budget, which Colbert did not find funny. Each time he would find some millions for the king, Louis requested more for Versailles. He finally moved in with the royal court in 1682 and would never again live in Paris. Versailles had the desired effect. All nobles became courtesans who would do anything to gain the king's favor. The majestic gardens, along with the stunning castles, made an indelible impression on whoever visited the king. All of Europe was in awe before it. And they copied it. St. Petersburg was created by Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia, as a copy of Versailles. But the extravagance had a price. France was at the time the most populous country in Europe, with huge resources. But Louis sucked them dry. The taxes and demands were so high that famine and misery were rampant in the country. When Louis was made aware of this, he usually would blame the bad weather or God's will. He did order some public works to be made to improve the situation, but he never cut on the spendings. And if there'd be only Versailles, maybe it would have been enough. But Louis had another passion. War. During his reign, Louis was at war roughly half of the time with other major powers. He reigned for 72 years. Do the math. That's a lot of warfare. 
the costliest enterprise a state can get itself involved in. As I said, Colbert performed miracles to modernize the French state and to make it more efficient, and that included the army. Under the king's leadership, and aided by forward-thinking officers, the French army was transformed into a much more professional tool. The regiments were better trained and equipped and especially better led. Merit and experience were favored over titles and money for appointing officers. A revolution in a country that was just exiting a feudal period. Let's sum up these wars and their consequences without going into too much detail. The first one is the Franco-Spanish War, which ended in 1659 and had been going on since before Louis' birth. After the crushing French victory at Rocroi in 1643, the French kept the advantage, and Spain had to give up and give in by signing the Traité des Pyrénées. Spain had to cease some territory to France and to pay reparations. That treaty marks the beginning of a period of decline for Spain that will continue until the 20th century. There is then a small war in 1667-1668 called the War of Devolution. Spain refused to pay Marie-Thérèse's dot to Louis, so he declared war. This time, Spain had help from England, the Netherlands, and Sweden. Nevertheless, the French forces, led by Marshal Turenne, triumphed. Spain had to sign another humiliating treaty, and France gained more territory. It's also the time when Louis hired Vauban, the famous military architect, to fortify the French borders. His remarkable forts are still visible all over France and revolutionized defensive warfare. The next war, from 1672 to 1678, is the War of Holland. This one opposes the Dutch Republic, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and other countries against France, England, and Sweden. I know, alliances shifted quite fast at the time. I won't go into too much details, but let's say that we wanted to diminish the Dutch Republic's power and to limit their formidable commercial endeavors. France gained many victories, basically invading the lower countries. It is a very costly war, but a successful one. In 1678, the adversaries signed the Treaty of Nimègue. France gains territory in its northeast as well as in the Caribbean. This is considered Louis' most impressive military accomplishment. The last two wars were not as successful. Louis wanted to achieve even more to establish himself and France as the incontestable military and financial power in Europe. So in 1688, there was a new war, known as the War of the League of Augsburg, or the Nine Years' War. It's a huge conflict that involves pretty much every European power, all against France. It pretty much ends in a stalemate, and Louis doesn't get much for it, except for Strasbourg. Finally, and then we'll quit the subject of war, comes the War of the Spanish Succession. When Charles II, King of Spain, dies without an heir, the various European factions start to argument. Louis wants to seize the occasion to remove the Habsburg family from Spain, 
see the Habsburg with their crown heads in Spain, our countries in basically a square, and circle France. And we wanted to break that circle and to put a friendly king in Spain. This war will be long and exhausting for everyone involved from 1701 to 1714. In the end, Louis gets what he wanted and a French Bourbon monarch becomes king of Spain with the limitation that a Spanish Bourbon cannot be king of France, ever. The Bourbon family is still reigning in Spain today. But France is on the edge of economical and social collapse. It's a paradox. As France became more powerful and gained territory, it also grew poorer, and so did its people. The vicious circle and the concentration of power are key elements that will eventually lead to the French Revolution of 1789. Let us take a detour by North America. Since the early 17th century, France had established new France in modern-day Canada on the Saint-Laurent River. Quebec City had been founded in 1608 and Ville-Marie, now Montreal, in 1642. But the French did not stop there and kept exploring this unknown territory. There are two main elements to focus on during that period. First is the exploration along the Great Lakes and then the Mississippi River. René Robert Cavalier de La Salle explored these regions on foot all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. He established forts along the river that will become later cities, now American cities. He will also claim that huge territory for France and will name it Louisiane or Louisiana in honor of his king. To enumerate a few cities that were founded as French forts or commercial counters during that era, let us quote Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Memphis, New Orleans, and more. The second element that Louis wanted to reinforce is the established colony of New France. This was mostly achieved by sending a régiment to straighten the colony, the Régiment de carignan salière and by sending female settlers, known as the Filles du Roi, the King's Daughters. These measures, amongst others, made new friends stronger than ever, much to the dismay of England and if its North American colonies. That will play out in the 1750s and 1780s. But all good things come to an end and we must discuss the end of Louis' life. The last 30 years of Louis' life are indeed marked by suffering, bigotry, and impoverishment of the kingdom. As I said earlier, Louis married in secret the Marquise de Maintenon in 1683. She was a very bright woman who took care of Louis' illegitimate children. She was also a Catholic devout and made Louis a lot more so in his daily life. Age also probably played a key role in there. To me, the biggest mistake of Louis' reign happened then. In 1685, Louis revoked what was known as the Edit de Nantes. That proclamation 
allowed freedom of religion in France and was in place since 1598, then putting an end to decades of civil war, the wars of religion. Louis wanted the kingdom to be Catholic, like him, and to force it down the throat of the people if need be. That, plus the many persecutions against the French Protestants, known as the Huguenots, forced thousands of them to flee France for England, the Dutch Republic, or other Protestant countries. It was a net loss for France, since these people often were merchants, craftsmen, and creators. Literally a small catastrophe for the country that happened for no good reason. In the last years of his life, Louis suffered many personal tragedies. He had a big family, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. His succession was assured, but faith struck him and his family. First, his younger brother, Philippe, died in 1701. Then, Louis' first son in 1711, and his grandson in 1712. All of a sudden, the future was much more uncertain. Louis even thought of making his illegitimate children eligible for the crown. But he knew that they would be contested, and that there might be a French succession war. When he died in 1715, his great-grandson, Louis, age 5, became Louis XV. The crisis was averted, but not everything was rosy in the French kingdom. Voltaire said of Louis XIV, quote, Not only were great things accomplished during his reign, but he did them himself, end quote. And he was not that of the mark. Good or bad, most major accomplishment during Louis' reign were made possible because of his will. Louis left France the strongest military power in Europe. His throne untouchable, the king's authority above everyone else's. During his reign, French culture, science and industry grew remarkably. To put it simply, at the beginning of the 18th century, if you wanted the best of anything, you'd go to France to find it. He also modernized, with the help of Colbert, the French law, financial and economical systems, as well as the city of Paris. Mud streets were paved, the police reinforced, and institutions like the Invalides for wounded soldiers built, for example. France won't know major changes like that again until Napoleon. New France thrived also during his reign, and France gained more colonies. But he also left empty coffers in a country tired by multiple and costly wars. His people's standard of living actually declined during his reign, and it will literally take a revolution to change that. He deluded himself into thinking that the French people's misery was not his fault, Maybe it was not entirely his fault, but it is clear that he thought of his status and of France's way before his people were there. I have to say that at the end of his life, he became more sensible and recognized his faults. Shortly before his death, 
he said to his five-year-old great-grandson, quote, Don't imitate me in anything, especially not in war. I loved war too much. End quote. Good advice to the future Louis XV. Louis will forever remain the Sun King, the monarch who appeared on stage painted in gold with the strongest nobles of France revolving around him, blessed by his light, elevated by his magnificence. You can admire him or loathe him, but Louis XIV deserves his official title of Louis the Great because of the impact he had in France, Europe, and the world. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Au revoir. You can find the Lafayette We Are Here podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms, or on lafayettepodcast.com. If you wish to contact me, you can do so at emmanuel at lafayettepodcast.com or on Twitter at lafayettepod. The music for this podcast is the Marche pour la Cérémonie des Turcs, composed by Jean-Baptiste Lully, arranged and performed by Jérôme Arfouche.